1665. You're walking up a hill. It's quiet. No one about. On your right is what will, in 200 years' time, become High Barnet Tube Station. You keep walking. It's awfully quiet. On your left, you pass a pub. No one in it. A little further, on your right, there's another pub. You read the name over the door. The Mitre. There's no one around. You're walking up the Great North Road, the main road out of London. You could follow it all the way to Edinburgh. These pubs, on your left and on your right, normally they'd be bustling. Horses tied up outside. Men drinking beer inside. A stop-off on their journey up north out of the city. But right now, it's silent. Deserted. The mitre is boarded up. The buildings on either side of it, they're boarded up too. A crow calls in the distance. But otherwise, it's quiet. Silent. It's 1665 and plague has broken out in London, beginning in an area called St Giles, near what is now Tottenham Court Road tube station. It spreads rapidly along the main trade routes out of London, up the Great North Road, to Barnet and beyond. As sickness and death spread, so do fear and panic. The wealthy run away from London, the epicentre of the epidemic. Away to their second houses in the countryside. They take the Great North Road out of the city, straight through Barnet. Local residents board up their houses, their businesses. As sickness and death spread, so do fear and panic. But this wasn't the first time Barnet had suffered at the hands of the plague. Here is a minute from a meeting of the governors of Queen Elizabeth's school. I quote, For these three years past, what with the great and universal sickness happening, the school is likely to grow in decay. These words were written, not in 1665, but 1605. Parents began to keep their children away from the school. And the governors, they began to refuse to meet. 1605. 60 years before the quote-unquote Great Plague of 1665. So things would get worse before they got better. But they did get better. The school, the country, recovered. Pulled through. And the governors, they started meeting again. Today's episode is about the governors. Three of them. About each of their lives. The three stories involve pirates, prisons, and plots to kill the king. There's a couple of invasions, too. And some wars. You're listening to Roundness, the Queen's Library podcast. Act 1. Pirates. When Queen Elizabeth's school was founded, Queen Elizabeth had a lot on her plate. It was 1573. The Earl of Leicester, Robert Dudley, asked the Queen to establish a school in Barnet. She agreed. She granted a royal charter. Here's a quote translated from the original Latin. A charter for one common grammar school in or near the town of Barnet, which shall be called the Free Grammar School of Queen Elizabeth, for the education, bringing up and instruction of boys and youth to be brought up in grammar and literary matter.
and the same to continue forever. Forever. Well, here we are. Still here. But in 1573, Elizabeth also had other things on her plate. Three years earlier, in 1570, the Pope excommunicated her. This was Pope Pius V. He issued a document which pronounced Elizabeth a heretic and ordered English people that they shouldn't follow her orders or laws anymore. And if anyone didn't listen to the Pope, well then, they were also excommunicated. All this was because Elizabeth had issued an Act of Parliament about ten years before that, in 1559. The Act re-established the monarch as the head of the Church of England and made it a crime for anyone to assert the authority of any foreign institution. The Act was basically trying to abolish the Pope's authority in England. This split between the Catholic Church and England it stretches back to Henry VIII splitting from the Catholic Church and creating the Church of England because he wanted to divorce his first wife, Catherine of Aragon. Henry's daughter Mary, Elizabeth's older half-sister, was a Catholic. She tried to reverse the split when she became queen. She had at least 280 people burned at the stake because they went against her attempts to return the country to Catholicism. But it was all in vain. When Elizabeth became queen, she turned the country back away from Catholicism. At this point, in the mid-16th century, you could more or less draw a diagonal line across Europe to show which parts stayed Catholic and which didn't. Protestantism was rising, and quickly. Its basic message of salvation had real power and appeal. All of this, of course, was incredibly sinister for both the Catholic Church and for secular Catholic rulers, so kings and, and princes and so on, whose rule was justified by Catholic ideology. That's Mr. Walker of the History Department here at Queen Elizabeth's. The, the, the Catholic Church was losing rapidly in some parts of Europe the moral and psychological hold that it had had over uh, much of the population. And this, of course, was a recipe for conflict. And conflict um, between Catholics and Protestants and between Catholic and Protestant powers took a number of forms in the 16th and 17th centuries. So uh, the example of the Dutch within the Spanish Habsburg Empire is particularly significant here. The name is perhaps worth referring to, the 80 Years' War. It was a very long, drawn-out, gruelling conflict in which the Dutch who took up Protestantism but were part of the very diverse Habsburg Empire, which was by no means just confined to Spain and the Netherlands. There, there were territories in, in many other parts of Europe as well. So it's a very, very diverse empire. And the Dutch, who were, uh, embraced Protestantism, were rebelling against the, the Spanish crown, which was uh, trying to keep its territories under Catholic control. Leading Protestant figures in England called on Queen Elizabeth to provide support for the Dutch rebels. During the 1570s, Elizabeth sent money and troops to the Netherlands, such as for the Battle of Raymanham. In 1585, after signing the Treaty of Nonsuch, she sent many more troops. The man in charge of these troops? Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester. This all fitted into a wider hostility between Elizabeth and the King of Spain, Philip II. 
Philip had been married to Elizabeth's Catholic half-sister, Mary, who'd been the previous Queen of England. When Mary died, Elizabeth became Queen. Philip asked for the new Queen's hand in marriage. Elizabeth refused. Things only deteriorated from there. Merchants, who'd been trading with Spain, they were hit hard by the conflict between England and Spain. For a lot of them, the ability to trade dried up. To try and recoup their losses, many of them turned to privateering. Privateering is a bit like piracy, attacking other ships, taking them and their cargo as prizes, even taking their crews as prisoners for exchange. The difference is that privateering, unlike piracy, was legal. Privateers carried documents that were issued by the monarch, and these documents gave them the power to act like pirates on the monarch's orders. State-sanctioned piracy. Privateering was, was kind of a way of, of going about the rivalry between the countries and benefiting economically. That's Mr Walker again. And perhaps to some extent interfering with the running of the Spanish Empire as well, but without taking on the Spanish directly. You know, you, you, you license a privateer, you know, a private individual who, who just wants to make a profit from this. You, you, you license them to interfere in Spain's trade because you don't yet have the confidence to do it yourself. You know, Spain, Spain's too powerful. You don't fancy taking on their navy. A direct conflict doesn't seem like a good idea. What happens, though, when the conflict ends? The documents from the monarch become no longer applicable. Privateers are left without jobs, but with a very specific skill set. And by now, this skill set is pretty well trained. Many kept doing what they'd been doing. Privateers became pirates. English privateers could make enormous profits. One famous example was Francis Drake. He began his work at sea as a slave trader in the 1560s. He went to what is now California and then claimed it for the English. To do so, he had to fight off the Spanish, who were also trying to claim the western coast of America. He ended up circumnavigating the globe, going right round. He made it back to England in 1580, and within a year, Queen Elizabeth knighted him. But the Spanish, understandably, thought of him a bit differently. To them, El Draque, as they called him, to them he was a pirate. King Philip II of Spain allegedly offered a 20,000 ducat reward for Drake's capture, or death. In modern money, that's about $8 million. And Drake wasn't the only person who was trying his hand at privateering. Henry Knowles was of noble birth. His mother was first cousins with the Queen herself. Knowles himself was the brother-in-law of Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester the guy who convinced the Queen to establish the school. In 1578, Knowles joined Sir Humphrey Gilbert in a venture, supposedly to set up a new colony on the east coast of North America. Sir Humphrey had gathered 11 heavily armed ships and a crew of 600 people. Many of the crew were convicted pirates who'd been especially pardoned for this voyage. Colonisation was apparently an important enough cause for them to get out of jail early. Knowles was less interested in setting up a new colony on the East Coast and more interested in privateering. He soon refused to acknowledge Sir Humphrey's authority and together with a Welsh pirate named John Callis, 
he defected with three ships to the Spanish coast on a privateering expedition. More ships joined them later. Sir Humphrey's planned voyage across the Atlantic never actually ended up happening. And how much this was because of Noel's defection, we don't know. But I can't imagine it helped. Sir Humphrey ended up complaining to Queen Elizabeth's spymaster, Sir Francis Walsingham. Humphrey complained of, and I quote, Mr. Knowles' unkind and ill dealing. In 1582, Knowles led an expedition to Portugal. It was a country gripped by crisis. The young King Sebastian had died in battle two years earlier. He left only one heir, the elderly Cardinal Henry. Within two years, the frail Henry was himself dead. He was a clergyman, a man of the church, so he wasn't allowed to have children, and he didn't. But, foolishly, he also hadn't nominated a successor. What do you do in this situation? Who becomes king? Several pretenders claimed that they were heirs to the throne. And King Sebastian's body had never been found after the battle at which he died. So several people claimed that they were the young king, that he wasn't killed in battle, but rather just missing. They turned up and said, right, I'm back, and I want my rightful throne. It was a real mess. Among all these pretenders and impostors, there were also a few people with actual, provable claims to the empty throne. One of these was Antonio, nephew to the now-dead Cardinal King Henry. We don't know too much about Antonio's early life, just that he was taken prisoner at the same battle where the young King Sebastian was killed. Apparently, he talked his way out of prison early, made up a story which the prison guards bought. Who knows what he said. Our pirate friend, Henry Knowles, sailed to Portugal in 1582 in support of Antonio. But the ship sank. Queen Elizabeth's spymaster, Sir Francis Walsingham, ordered Knowles to return to England. Knowles ended up in the Netherlands, where he died. We're not sure what of. Maybe disease? Or, given his nature, maybe after a duel from a wound? You wonder, given all this, where he found the time to serve as a governor of the school. I guess a question which arises here is, what exactly does a governor do? Queen Elizabeth's charter appointed 24 of them. It said they had to be, quote, discreet and honest men. The school had an endowment, but it wasn't enough to survive on. Fees were charged to the boys who boarded, and this helped. But even with endowment and fees combined, this was only enough to cover staffing costs which meant that governors footed the bill for the maintenance and repairs of the school building. In theory, the governors were meant to come from the local area of Barnet. But to fill up the 24 places, sometimes the school in its early history had to recruit from further afield. Some appointed governors declined their nominations. They didn't want the financial burden. Others, like Henry Knowles, they could easily afford the expenses but were sometimes preoccupied elsewhere. These days, it's a little more stable. 
governors set the school's objectives. They support, but also challenge, the headmaster and senior leadership team. And to my knowledge, none of them are pirates. Act 2. Prison. Picture the Tower of London. More specifically, picture the dungeon. You know, gunpowder plot. The place where Guy Fawkes was tortured. Imagine him getting slowly stretched out on the rack. How do you picture it? Dark. Maybe some cobwebs. A couple of rats, perhaps? Now, John Langham, who was a governor of Queen Elizabeth's school, John Langham might have taken a moment to consider the events that got him here, imprisoned in the tower. He might have sat down, closed his eyes, and wondered, how? How did he get here? Or he might not have. Unlike Henry Knowles, John Langham wasn't related to royalty. His granddad was a yeoman in Northamptonshire, which meant he owned and cultivated his own land. So he had some property. These days, maybe people would call him middle class. But not noble, by any means. Our Governor John started off as an apprentice to Sir Richard Napier. Napier was a merchant, trading in Turkey. So Langham spent a lot of time in his early years away from England. When he came back for good, he used his experience of trading in the Mediterranean to get jobs with the Levant Company and the East India Company. Both of these companies organised and regulated trade routes between England and areas of Asia. Langham became pretty prominent working for these companies. Which is to say, he got pretty rich. Rich enough to buy a country house in 1639. Cotsbrook Manor in Northamptonshire. But three years later, war broke out. Civil war. So the Civil War started in 1642 when Charles I raised his standard at York, declaring war on Parliament. That's Miss McGregor, head of the history department. It continued until 1649, culminating in the death of Charles I when he was executed on the 31st of January 1649 at Whitehall. That brought the end of the Civil War and with that, the death of the monarchy in England. And that leads into the period of time where we have a protectorate in England with Cromwell. Now, Oliver Cromwell, not to be confused with Thomas Cromwell from the Tudor time period, Oliver Cromwell was a very powerful general and in charge of Parliament, one of many generals in charge of Parliament, during the Civil War. He won numerous famous battles and he really brought to the forefront the New Model Army. Now, the New Model Army was the first real standing army in England, and that meant that they could be much more professional. They were also highly religious. The New Model Army was very much united in Puritanism, which is an extreme form of Protestantism. They used to sing sort of Puritan chants when they went into battle, It was very much, it united them as a group, which is one of the significant reasons they were an effective fighting force. There were also a number of key military developments they had with that, like a sort of proper uniform and armour, which they had compared to what the Royalists had at the time period. Langham found himself in the Tower of London, 
because he'd expressed his opposition to the new model army. He didn't like him. And for that, the authorities threw him in the tower. That picture you had in your head earlier, the dungeon in the tower, that's a pretty common picture. But it's kind of imaginary. Yes, the tower was the place where Guy Fawkes was tortured, his mangled, weak signature evidence of the awfulness that he faced. But also it was, and is, a royal castle. Most of the time the people being imprisoned were high status, imprisoned for short periods. Commoners got thrown in normal prisons, not the tower. And the tower wasn't a proper prison anyway, at least not at first. There was no purpose-built accommodation for prisoners until later, 1687, when a brick shed was built. That's not to say it was a nice place to stay. Normally, the night before the coronation, the new monarch sleeps in the tower. It's a tradition. But after the Civil War, when Charles II was restored to the throne, the night before his coronation, he didn't stay in the tower. The accommodation was in too poor a condition for a king. Not enough luxury. And don't get me wrong, torture was used on Guy Fawkes. And some other people. But not everyone. And probably not Langham. Langham was a merchant by trade and a merchant by nature. He had a real skill at raising money. He was also a supporter of the monarchy. So... He raised funds for a royalist conspiracy during the Commonwealth, the period after the Civil War when there was no English king, when Oliver Cromwell ran the country. Eventually, after Cromwell's death, Langham helped pave the way for Charles II's return, his restoration to the throne. Langham was one of the group who negotiated the terms of the king's return to power which was then set out by Charles in a document called the Declaration of Breda. One of the big things was how they were going to treat enemies of the previous king. The parliamentarians who had fueled the civil war and who'd held power during the Commonwealth. The declaration promised a, quote, free and general pardon. We have Langham in part to thank for that. And again, Langham raised money. Of the £50,000 presented to the king at the end of his exile, Langham contributed £5,310, over 10%, from one guy. Then he raised a further £10,000 to help pay off the navy, and this helped solidify Charles II's return as king. Just before Charles II left The Hague to return to England, Langham was rewarded for his efforts. On the 16th of May, 1660, in The Hague, Charles knighted Langham, Sir John Langham. Later that year, Langham was elected the Member of Parliament for Southwark in South London. Eleven years after he was knighted, eleven years to the day, on the 16th of May, 1671, Sir John Langham died. He was 87. Act 3. Plots. The restoration of Charles II was a mixed bag for Robert Payton, another governor of the school. Before it, he'd been working at the Court of Chancery, which dealt with issues of equity, 
It's a strand of law born out of the idea that in some cases, moral considerations might allow deviations from the strictness of the common law. These days, the Court of Chancery no longer exists in the UK. But back then, there was a real split between proper laws and this idea of equity. Sort of competition between the two. So Robert Payton was working in the Court of Chancery and making a lot of money. But the Restoration changed all that. Lots of judges and officials in the court had been sacked under Cromwell. And when Charles II returned, they were reinstated. Peyton lost his job. There was a silver lining, of sorts. Peyton got knighted. He might have been unemployed, but now he was Sir Robert Peyton. You'd forgive him for having a complicated relationship with the monarchy. And he didn't hide it. King Charles became aware of Peyton's criticisms. Criticisms of the king and his actions. Even so, fast forward to 1679 and Peyton was elected the Member of Parliament for Middlesex. He quickly got stuck in. Got himself appointed to 41 separate committees, including the Committee to Prevent Drunkenness and Swearing. But then, just a year later, 1680, Peyton was kicked out of Parliament. To understand why, we have to understand something called the Meal Tub Plot. If you were in London in 1680, you eventually would have come across a small piece of paper, a pamphlet, with text and images printed on it. It would have looked a bit like a miniature newspaper, but with drawings instead of photographs. Perhaps you bought this pamphlet in a market, or a bookshop, or maybe while you sit sipping from a cup in one of London's many coffee houses, maybe someone taps you on the shoulder and passes you the pamphlet. Or maybe you'd see the pamphlet posted on the outside of a building as you walk down the street. Maybe you're travelling in a horse-drawn coach, and someone, you didn't have time to see who, Someone throws a pamphlet into the coach from the street. Sooner or later, you'd come across a pamphlet. And on that pamphlet would be a story. That story would go something like this. So there's a woman named Elizabeth Sellier. She's a midwife and a Catholic. So through her job, she gets to know a lot of wealthy Catholic women. And at that time, there were lots of Catholics imprisoned in England. Celia visits inmates at Newgate Prison in London and passes on charity to them from these wealthy Catholic women. It's at Newgate that Celia meets a prisoner named Thomas Dangerfield. Maybe she should have realised from his name that he was bad news. When he's released from prison, Dangerfield asks Celia to store some documents in her meal tub which is a large barrel that people use to store flour. Dangerfield tells Celia these documents were needed for his upcoming trial. But an anonymous tip leads to the authorities searching the meal tub. Turns out, what Dangerfield had claimed were trial papers weren't anything of the sort. They were, in fact, documents related to a conspiracy conspiracy to kill the king. 
Celia was arrested in June 1680 for her role in the plot. She insisted on her innocence and was acquitted. Then, three months later, she tried to publish a pamphlet that explained her side of what happened to set the story straight. Turned out not to be a good idea. She was promptly re-arrested, this time for libel. She was found guilty and convicted. Locked away in prison. Guess where? Yep, Newgate. The thing about the meal tub plot is that it wasn't real. Totally made up. Fabricated. Fictitious. Fake. There's absolutely no evidence that Celia was involved in a conspiracy to kill the king. There's little evidence that she ever even met Dangerfield. Seems he made it all up. Celia, a midwife, was the perfect person to blame. And at this point, we have to remind ourselves that Catholicism was seen as a very feminine religion. It's a bunch of blokes wearing dresses, see? That's Professor Diane Perkis of the University of Oxford. Um, so because of that, there's a set of anxieties about Catholicism and feminization, Catholicism and feminine thinking, Catholicism and feminine plotting, that are particularly active around the meal tub plot and its womb-like container and its midwife secret agent, because midwives were already regarded as potentially secret agents. And they were regarded as dangerous because they were privy to secrets and they had access to private and secret spaces. Midwifery is, is intrinsically closed off from the public because unlike now, um, there were really strict social rules about who could enter the birthing room. Only women could enter the birthing room. Um, you could have a doctor, but you couldn't have the father of the baby, for example, as is now very common. And that just didn't happen at all and would have been regarded as completely disgraceful and embarrassing. In part because, and this is also important for Celia and the meal tub plot, um, having a baby was seen as polluting. You were isolated not because you were special, but because you were dirty. Um, and so the link between midwives and secrecy and hidden grime makes someone like Celia an absolutely perfect target for thinking about the Popish plot. This wasn't the only fake plot to grip the nation in this period. The most famous one happened two years before. A man called Titus Oates spread news of a plot, again to kill King Charles II. Apparently, the Catholic Church had approved the assassination. Of course, it wasn't true. But the so-called plot was investigated for three years. At least 15 people died, having been wrongly accused of involvement. These plots were linked to hysteria against Catholics. Charles II's brother James was next in line to the throne, and he was a Roman Catholic. Members of Parliament were attempting to exclude James from eventually becoming king. The supposed Catholic plot to assassinate Charles helped this narrative. People wanted to believe. Any Catholic was seen as automatically a terrorist in rather the way that I suppose some very Islamophobic people today might believe that all Muslims are terrorists or in league with terrorists. And that might even include some very right-wing MPs. That's Professor Perkis again. So that the atmosphere was one of fear and anxiety. And so in this period, what we're seeing is people's perfectly genuine fear 
of foreigners, of a foreign invasion, of being out of control in their lives and being unable to manage the government's decisions or influence the government's decisions, and, and turning that to a series of pretty aggressive behaviours. I don't doubt that Oates, to some extent, knew that he was making things up. But some of the people who listened to him did so because of this curious human quality known as confirmation bias. And this is the idea that we naturally listen harder to and find more believable evidence that supports views we already hold. So if we already think that England is riddled with creepy plotters in basements, storing up gunpowder to blow up the authentic Protestant government, then of course we're going to listen like mad to words. We're going to find him thoroughly credible. People don't like the idea that events are random, and they would really prefer to be able to link together things that probably have completely independent causes with a single overarching explanation It makes them feel much more secure. Anti-Catholic sentiment in England wasn't new. Remember Queen Elizabeth being excommunicated by the Pope. And by the mid-17th century, the anniversary of Elizabeth's accession to the throne had become a Protestant carnival. On the 17th of November, people took to the streets to celebrate. But these carnivals weren't just fun and games. A pub, unluckily named the Pope's Head, had all its windows smashed by a mob during one of the carnivals. And often, the parties featured bonfires where people burned effigies of the Pope. Still happens today, in Lewis, Sussex, every year. Back then, one effigy featured two smaller figures, one on either side of the Pope, whispering into his ears. But these two figures weren't two angels. No, they were devils. While the effigy burned, Carnival goers placed still alive cats into the Pope's stomach. Horrible stuff. You get the picture. Anyway, back to our governor, Sir Robert Payton, Member of Parliament, accused of participating in the meal tub plot. A parliamentary committee investigated his conduct. The committee presented their findings. The House of Commons voted without a division to expel Peyton from Parliament. Apparently, his response was, and I quote, Hang the king if he cannot protect me from Parliament. Then he left, walked out. Hmm, what else was he going to do? But that wasn't the end of it. In February of the next year, 1681, a speech appeared, published in a pamphlet. It was apparently the speech given by the Speaker of the House of Commons a guy named William Williams. It was about Peyton, about his expulsion. Here's an extract. I quote, I cannot call you fallen angel, for you have been a devil from the beginning, and to bring your diabolical purpose to pass, you have been a true hypocrite and played a prize with religion for advantage. But why should I say religion when you never had any, but were ever a profuse rolling hero? having nothing now left but the shape of a man, whereby you have become nauseous to this house, and therefore they now spew you out. Seems Williams doesn't mince his words. Peyton gets a copy of this speech, reads it. He's furious. Goes to Westminster, 
storms down the corridors. He finds Williams and demands a public disavowal of the printed speech. Williams says no. Peyton doesn't like this. He tells Williams that they should settle this like men with a duel. Williams, again, says no. Peyton gets sent to the tower. This belligerence wasn't out of character for Peyton. Three years earlier, in 1678, he got into an altercation with a clerk at the Court of Chancery, his old stomping ground. Again, he challenged him to a duel. The clerk made a formal complaint. In it, he said Peyton was, and I quote, a very desperate and unruly man who often gets drunk and beats those he meets with, though not provoked. Peyton, the man who one year later was a member of parliament on the parliamentary committee to prevent drunkenness and swearing. Before the 1681 election, a pamphlet appeared, warning the good Protestant people of Middlesex not to re-elect, and I quote, an atheist and notorious debauchee. Peyton ended up not standing at all. His career as an MP was over. On top of this, he'd been facing growing financial difficulties for a while. His estate was heavily mortgaged. He was in a lot of debt. And his luck didn't get any better. In 1683, he was accused of being involved in another plot to assassinate King Charles. And this one wasn't totally made up. There was actually a plot. But Peyton was discharged from prison for lack of evidence. Two years after that, two men gave evidence that Peyton was planning an uprising in the city of London, an uprising in support of William of Orange from Holland, who was himself planning an invasion of England. Hmm, maybe invasion is a little strong of a word. A number of high-ranking English nobility had invited William to come to England and take charge. Whatever we want to call it, this was the final straw. Maybe this time Peyton was guilty, or maybe he was just unwilling to test his diminishing luck any further. Whatever the reason, Peyton fled across the Channel. He took refuge in Holland. He became a burgher, or privileged citizen, of Amsterdam. His estate back in England, which included property in East Barnet, was split up by the government. One day, he was in Rotterdam, a major Dutch port city. A group of men, including some British officers who were in the Dutch army, plus a guy called Beville Skelton. This group tried to kidnap Peyton. Their plan was to take him back to England on the royal yacht so that he could stand trial. But as a burgher of Amsterdam, Peyton was now a Dutch citizen. And the Dutch were enraged by this assault on one of their own. He walked free. William of Orange's invasion of England did happen, in the end, in 1688. He came to England with a troop of 463 ships, 40,000 men. One of those men was Robert Peyton. William became King of England. Peyton tried running to become the MP of Middlesex again in the 1689 general election. He lost. On the 1st of May, May Day, Peyton drank some claret, red wine from Bordeaux. But there was something off about it. He started sweating. Then he developed a fever. 
Two days later, on the 3rd of May, 1689, Sir Robert Payton died. The historical accounts in this episode were adapted from Dr. John Marinkowitz's forthcoming book, Developments in English Education Over 450 Years, with particular reference to Queen Elizabeth's School Barnet from 1573 to 2023. Some of the details, like about the tower, the meal tub plot, and the Pope burnings, were taken from journal articles by Edward Impey, Geoffrey Parnell, Kirsten Evenden, and Sheila Williams. You can find full details of all our sources in the episode notes. Thank you to my guests, Professor Diane Perkis, Miss McGregor, and Mr. Walker. If you have a topic you'd like us to cover in a future episode, we'd love to hear from you. Email us. Our address is library at qebarnet.co.uk. Additional music in this episode was by Dr. Turtle, Lee Rosavere, Agora, and Mira. <laughs>